Please pray with me. Our God and our Father, please help us by your Spirit, for Jesus' sake, amen. The opening comments I want to share should not be taken as part of the sermon, but I'd just like to start by giving a quick word of encouragement to our Emmanuel Church family. Last night, this morning, and then again this evening, we are celebrating two great kindnesses from God toward our church family. The first, of course, is the arrival of our two-year anniversary, which actually was August 5th, but we're marking that uh, event this weekend. And uh, the second thing we're celebrating is the dedication of our building given to us as a gift from Northwest Baptist Church, but we know ultimately uh, as a gift from the hand of God. The story of this church's brief history, and it's only been a very brief history, has been one of blessing upon blessing and privilege upon privilege, and few of those blessings rival uh, the provision of this building and the many opportunities and stewardships that come along with it. Uh, But there have been many more blessings. We've witnessed uh, baptisms. We've seen people added to the membership of the church. We've added church officers. We've developed a number of strategic missions partnerships, and our budget has grown considerably. Well, what should our posture be as the recipients of so many blessings from the hand of God? Well, we should be bursting with thanksgiving to God, and we should recount these blessings and these mercies again and again and allow our hearts to run out to God with thanksgiving. But that said, let's get one thing straight as we sit here comfortably in our new building, at least new to us, and let's fix this in our minds. We are no more a church by virtue of owning this building than we were two years ago when we first covenanted together with those 17 charter members. And we have advanced no further in Christ's affections by signing the deed, by growing in our membership, by adding officers and church staff. We are no more a church because of these blessings. And so I encourage you amidst all the gladness In celebration of this occasion, all the thanksgiving to God for His manifold gifts, let me encourage you, don't tether your heart to these more external signs of blessing. What makes us a church is the presence of Christ Himself by His Spirit, and that is enough for us and will always be enough for us. Our hope is built as it always has been and always will be on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. But now for the sermon. I've been looking forward to this weekend and thinking about this occasion for some time and thinking especially about what sermons should be preached on such an occasion. There are a number of subjects that I think would be appropriate for us to consider together. We might consider, as this is a weekend about Thanksgiving, it might be appropriate to consider the subject of Thanksgiving for God has blessed us immensely and we'd be remiss if we didn't acknowledge our Thanksgiving to God. We might take up the subject of stewardship, for to whom much is given, much will be required, and Emmanuel, have we not been given much from God? We might take up the subject of presence, or sacred space, or corporate worship, or mission, all subjects that would be appropriate with the dedication of a building in view. 
So it's Monday morning, I'm in my study, I'm thinking about this occasion, what should I preach? John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, felt very unworthy to preach the Bible, and maybe that should be a qualification for anyone who would stand up to preach the Bible. But nonetheless, he said of his own preaching, I preach what I felt, what I smartingly did feel. You'll pardon the old English. I preach what I felt, what I smartingly did feel. And so I wish to continue in Bunyan's example by preaching to you now what I feel so moved by God to preach this morning. This sermon is a topical sermon. We return next Sunday to our regular exposition of the Gospel of John, but this is a topical message. So I'm going to draw our attention to a handful of texts this morning, uh, but the sermon is prompted by this occasion, and more specifically by the following question. And here is the question to get our time started. As long as we meet here at 407 Petrie Road, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, 27106, as long as we meet here, indeed as long as we are a church wherever we may meet, what will be the message of this pulpit? What will be the message of this church's preachers and teachers? What will be the message of indeed this whole congregation to Winston-Salem, to one another, and to the world? This is the subject I want to take up this morning. What will be our message both here and in every other place God may take us in the generations to come? So that's the question. What message will we preach to the world? So let's start with this. The message of this church is pre-committed. The message of this church is pre-committed. Well, pre-committed to what? Well, it is pre-committed to the Bible. Our message will be predicated upon a commitment to the Bible as the inspired, authoritative, and infallible Word of the living God. We understand this book to be the authoritative revelation of God to man. God has spoken, and His speech is recorded for us in the Word of God. And our church, as long as we meet here and in any other place, will be committed to the Bible as the very Word of God. The message of Emmanuel Church will be pre-committed. Indeed, if we stray from the Bible as the authoritative Word of God, we no longer exist as a church as far as I'm concerned. Uh, we have worked this pre-commitment to the Bible into the very foundation, identity, and DNA of this congregation. Emmanuel Church ceases to be if we deviate from our commitment to the Word of God. Our church was founded on this pre-commitment, for we say, as we said on August 5th, 2017, and every member has said since then in our church covenant these words, as the Word of God is the ultimate authority in every area of faith, order, and morals, we will submit to it, striving to live to the glory of Him who has called us out of darkness into His Marvelous light. And members of Emmanuel, you have made a solemn vow in the presence of God, Christ Jesus, and the assembly. You have vowed to prize the Bible as the authoritative Word of God. You have vowed to submit to it in every area of life, faith, order, and morals. Will we keep our vow? And will we insist throughout the generations of this church's life that everyone who would join this church will be required to make such a vow? 
But it's not just in our church covenant. Our confession of faith makes a similar statement. In fact, in the very first article before anything is said about God Himself, our pre-commitment is made manifest with these words. The Scriptures of the Old and New Testament were given by inspiration of God and are the only sufficient, certain, and authoritative rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. If we stray from our commitment to the Bible, we cease to be Emmanuel Church. We have established this in the very identity and foundation of this church. We have pre-committed our church to the Bible as the authoritative Word of God, and this church will not be an hospitable environment to professing Christians who will call into question the inspiration, reliability, and authority of the Bible. Let it be known the church is pre-committed. This church will stand on the Bible, and from this rock we will not be moved. But this is not merely a distinctive of Emmanuel Church. This is a distinctive of true Christianity. If we cease to be Bible people, we cease to be Christian people. The church for thousands of years has been a people committed to the Bible as the very Word of God. The Apostle Paul said to Timothy, his son in the faith, as he is nearing the end of his life, Paul nearing the end of his life, writing to Timothy, he says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and following, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, that's the truth about the Scriptures. But now, Timothy, what are you going to do about it? Paul goes on in chapter 4, verse 1, Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul calls upon the witness of God and upon Christ Jesus who will judge the living and the dead. And what does he have to say to Timothy in light of those witnesses? Well, he doesn't say, make some helpful suggestions to the people for how they might live if they felt so inclined. He doesn't give them 12 helpful tips for life. He doesn't say, just give them encouragement upon encouragement and happy thought upon happy thought to boost their self-esteem, to stroke the human ego. That's not what he says. He calls upon Christ as witness who will judge the living and the dead, and he says, Timothy, you preach the Word. You give them the Bible, brother. You give them the very lively Word of God. The man of God who would stand to preach must be absolutely convinced that this is the Word of God. And the man of God who stands to preach must commit himself to preach the Word and nothing else. He must believe deep down in his bones that if he is called of God to speak, he must do, as 1 Peter 4.11 says, he must speak the oracles or the words of God. The man of God must himself commit that he is not going to preach his own opinions and perspectives, but he is going to preach the Word. He must have this awareness that I am only a messenger, I am a mouthpiece, 
I am called to bring the Scriptures to the congregation unmixed and unadulterated. I make no apology for them. God has spoken. His will has been made known, and it is only for us to know it and to live in light of it. If he mixes the message with the philosophies of the day, he does so at his own peril. If he draws back from the Bible and makes apologies for it and softens it to suit itching ears, Christ is his judge. If any man would stand up and preach in this church, he must be devoted to this book as the very Word of God. And you mark this, any man who would stand up to preach has no authority in this place outside the Word of God. But it is not enough, listen, it is not enough for the man himself to be committed to these things. All those who would hear the Word of God preached and expounded must demand this from their preachers. We must demand this from our leaders. See, there were two problems in 2 Timothy 4, preachers who don't preach the Word and members who don't want the Word. People who won't endure sound teaching, but instead accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Paul is warning Timothy of people who have made a market for false teachers. It's not enough that the man of God be committed to the Bible. You members of Emmanuel, we members of Emmanuel, we must demand this of our preachers. You must be like those saints of old in Nehemiah chapter 8. As Ezra the preacher gathers the people, we read this in Nehemiah 8 and verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, he's the preacher, they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people, they weren't itching for false teaching. The ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for this purpose. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Like those Jews told Ezra, bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. You demand of your pastors, pastor, bring us the Bible. Preach the word to us. We didn't get up early and gather here to hear your stories and your jokes and your opinions. We came here for the word of the living God, and we will not tolerate a man standing up in the midst of God's worship, in the midst of the assembly, and giving us anything less. Preacher, you have nothing to say to us if it is not founded upon the word of God. You sense their reverence for the word of God. The the standing before the Word and falling before the Word. Their ears attentive to the Word. They felt they were answerable to the Word of God. The, The awe in the presence of the Word of God 
If our message is not the very lively word of God, then we have no message at all. Better to have our tongues cut out and preach any other message from this place. And I'll say even more, better to sell this property to some developer who could at least put up maybe some nice apartments or something like that or create a community park if we're not going to commit ourselves to preach the Word of God in this place as long as the Lord would have us here. And the German reformer, Martin Luther, was threatened with excommunication if he did not recant his views of the authority of the Bible over and against the authority of popes and councils. And listen, that was the issue for Luther. It wasn't justification by faith alone. His mature understanding of that doctrine didn't come till later. No, his issue was the Bible. The Bible is the Word of God over and against any other human authority, over and against popes and councils. And what, what consumed Luther and possessed him was that men kept getting in the way of God's Word. He wanted the Bible. And that was the conviction that, that blossomed into the great Reformation doctrines that we hold so dear. As Luther is facing excommunication and possibly death, he said this, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures or by evident reason, for I can believe neither Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Thus I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. We should imitate Luther's sanctified inflexibility on first principles, on his pre-commitment to the Bible. Here we stand, and from this rock we will not be moved. The message of this church, as long as we meet at 407 Petrie Road and in any other place, will be predicated upon the Bible. Let it be known that our message is pre-committed to the Word of God. And we haven't yet said enough. If we just say we're committed to the Bible, a lot of people say they're committed to the Bible. They come up with all kinds of doctrines and things uh, that are completely foreign to the Word of God. We have to go further. We must say what we believe the Bible to teach. What do we believe the Bible to teach? What will be the major themes of our message to the world? You can't just say the Bible. The Bible's a big book, and it's been misinterpreted and misapplied countless times. So what do we believe the Bible to teach? I can't very well say everything in the 20 minutes or so that remain, but I can say a few things. We believe the Bible to be the Word of God, but it's a particular understanding of the Bible that we proclaim and teach. So I'll summarize the major tenets of our biblical message under four headings. Four headings, four major themes that characterize the message we will preach to the world. First of all, we will preach a particular view of God. We will preach a particular view of God. It must be particular. We insist on being particular. We insist on assiduous attention to the Word of God and what it teaches us about God. We will teach a particular view of God. We will preach and teach and make manifest the Bible's view of God. God as He is revealed in the Scriptures, the sovereign creator and sustainer of all things, the God who spoke the universe 
into being, as well as everything we can see and know and touch. The God who gives light to every man and every woman. The God whose voice is over the waters and the God who makes the deer give birth. The God of power, the God of wonders, and the God of might. We will proclaim the God who is utterly sublime in all His perfections. The God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, in His wisdom, His power, His holiness, His justice, His goodness, and His truth. The God who is love, who is indeed slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The God whose kindnesses and mercies to mankind have been multiplied as the stars of the sky. The God who is altogether holy, indeed holier than you and I could possibly understand or imagine. The God whose holiness neither we nor the angels can look upon. The God of full, total, unalloyed moral beauty. The God whose eyes are too pure to look upon evil and who will not tolerate injustice. That is the God of the Bible. The God whose eyes are in every place, who beholds all the works and deeds of men. The God who searches men's hearts and who sees all their thoughts. The God before whose eye we are all laid bare and whose presence spreads over the world like a blanket. The God who is king. The God of armies. The God of the nations. The God who is high and lifted up in splendor and majesty. The God who is judged. The God who is a consuming fire. The God to whom we are all answerable whether we acknowledge it or not. God is unaffected and unmoved by unbelief. He does not need your consent to keep your heart beating. He does not need your permission to regulate the particular details and circumstances of your petty life. He doesn't need your approval to be the judge and arbiter of your soul. He's unmoved and unchanged by human unbelief. We will preach the God who is over all. And to Him we must give an account, and there is no hope for mankind outside of Him. We will, as long as we meet in this place and as long as we are a church, God being our helper, never stray from this view of God. God as He is. The God who is there. God as He is revealed to us in His Word. From this view we will not move, nor will we concede one inch. We will preach the God of the Bible God as He is revealed. But the message we preach is not limited to a particular view of God. Secondly, we teach a particular view of man. A particular view of God. Secondly, a particular view of man. Man in His created glory. A little lower than the angels and crowned with glory and honor. Man in the image of God. For Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says this, as God created mankind, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. We will teach this view of man. Man as the crowning glory of creation created in the very image of God Himself. Listen, no other religion or worldview offers a more dignified view of man. You can go up to any man or woman, Christian or no, and you can tell them, I believe 
you are created in the very image of the living God. There is no religion or worldview that ascribes more dignity and worth to the human person than the Christian worldview. And no other religion or worldview offers a more realistic view of humanity, for we do not only preach man in his created glory, we will preach man in his sin, in his fallen state, man in his unrighteousness and wickedness and rebellion against God, mankind in darkness, mankind in depravity, mankind in danger, man in his overwhelming need for a solution to his sin problem. A man who is, as Ephesians 2.1 tells us, dead in his trespasses and sins, sons of disobedience, children of wrath. We will proclaim, as Romans 3 says, there is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God, no one does good, not even one. The way of peace they have not known, and there is no fear of God before their eyes. We will preach man in sin, totally depraved, and totally unable to achieve his own salvation, unable to contribute in the slightest to the saving of his soul. Man in darkness and in sin, without hope and without God in the world. But we won't just proclaim the truth of man's sinfulness, which is self-evident. We will preach about the vast chasm our sin introduces between us and a holy God. We will preach the wrath of God against sin. We will announce to the world the impending judgment that is at hand. Upon the notes of wrath, hell, and eternal punishment, we will make no uncertain sound. We won't shy away from these unpleasant themes, and we will make no apologies or excuses for God's just judgment. We will not fail to warn sinners to flee the wrath to come. Indeed, we will plead with them with tears in our eyes and earnestness in our voices and hope in our hearts. Have done with sin and be reconciled to God. So we will preach a particular view of God. We will preach a particular view of man. And thirdly, and wonderfully, we will preach a particular view of Christ. We'll preach a particular view of Christ. On March 25th, 1861, Charles Spurgeon preached his first sermon in the newly erected Metropolitan Tabernacle which at that time was the largest church in Christendom. It was an occasion for them, not unlike this occasion for us, just on a much grander scale and with a much better preacher. Uh, But he preached that first sermon, that first day in the newly erected Metropolitan Tabernacle, and he opened the sermon with these words. I would propose that the subject of the ministry of this house, as long as this platform shall stand, and as long as this house shall be frequented by worshipers, shall be the person of Jesus Christ. I am never ashamed to avow myself a Calvinist. I do not hesitate to take the name Baptist, but if I am asked to say what is my creed, I think I must reply, it is Jesus Christ. My venerable predecessor, Dr. John Gill, has left a body of divinity, admirable and excellent in its way, but the body of divinity to which I would pin and bind myself forever, God helping me, it's not His system of divinity or any other human treatise, but Christ Jesus, who is the sum and substance of the gospel, who is in Himself all theology, the incarnation of every precious truth, the all-glorious personal embodiment of the way, the truth, and the life. I propose that we imitate the example of Spurgeon in the Metropolitan Tabernacle. 
Let us resolve that the theme of our preaching, the sum of all our theology, the heart of our message will be the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of what God has done in Christ to make a way for sinners to be saved and redeemed and reconciled to Him. So what will we preach to the world? We will preach Jesus Christ, the Son of God, incarnate by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, sent by the Father as a Savior for sinners. We will preach Emmanuel, God with us. The Word who was in the beginning with God, and indeed was God, the Word who was made flesh and who dwelt among us, Jesus Christ, the longed-for Messiah, the seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, the prophet like Moses, David's greater son. We will preach Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We will preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. We will say with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 1, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and Him crucified, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Our message is the gospel of Jesus, which is the power of God unto salvation. We will preach Jesus, the crucified one, the divine substitute, the Savior of the world who shed His blood so that sinners might be saved, God's loving provision for man's sin problem. We will preach Christ risen from the dead, defeater of the grave, Christ who was indeed raised for our justification, Christ who reigns now as the living Lord over all and who stands ready to receive sinners into His kingdom, His kingdom which will have no end. Our message will forever be that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We will never tire of announcing to men and women that the light of the world has come and that for any who would believe in Him will not remain in darkness but will have everlasting life. The Puritan Richard Sibbs once said to a budding young preacher, young man, if ever you would do good, if ever you would do good, you must preach the gospel and the free grace of God in Christ Jesus. And the same is true for us. If we would do any good for Winston-Salem, and indeed for the world, we must preach the gospel and the free grace of God in Christ Jesus. Christ in His incarnation, in His life, and in His death, and His resurrection, Christ in His session at the right hand of God, Christ who is coming again to judge the living and the dead, Christ who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the King of glory, the theme of heaven's praises, the one who is coming again to make all things new. This is the heart of our message. It is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But I say there were four parts to our message at least four biggies. We'll preach a particular view of God, we'll preach a particular view of man, a particular view of Christ. But there's a fourth part, and for us, it is the most important part. Our message will include, fourthly, a particular summons. 
a particular summons, a particular call to response. We will say to every sinner who comes in this place from the oldest saint down to the youngest child, uh, we will say, and opportunities were given in Winston-Salem, whether it be at our dinner table or on a high school campus, we will say through our missionaries who are able to go to the uttermost parts of the earth, we will say the promise of the gospel, and that is that though your sins be as scarlet, God says, I will make them white as snow. Though they be as crimson, they will be like wool. If anyone would believe on the Son of God, he will have everlasting life. For all those who forsake sin and flee to Christ, he will have them and receive them and give them entrance into paradise. This is the summons. Come to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Come and be rid of your sins. Come and forsake darkness and death. Come and find life and find forgiveness. Come and find rest from your burdens, rest for your weary soul. Come to Christ Jesus and live. Our message will include this summons to Christ, this call to repentance and faith in our Lord Jesus. Indeed, our message is not complete until this summons is proffered. We go to the world with the good news that to all those who embrace God's only Son, for all those who turn from their sin, repenting and trusting in Jesus Christ, to those who come in faith, God will grant everlasting life. And I say we say that to you here today. Our message is a particular view of God, God in His holiness, God in His justice, God in His loving kindness. And we preach a particular view of man, man fallen from created glory and dead in trespasses and sins, so desperately in need of a Savior, so entrenched in a sin problem. And we preach a particular view of Christ who is the Savior of the world, the very Son of God who came into the world, who went to the cross and bore our sins and died and rose so that all those who might put their trust in Him, not just believe the facts of history, but embrace Him as a personal Savior for our personal sins, for all who would do that, He would have them and receive them and give them life. So what is our message? We proclaim the holy God of the Bible, mankind in His sin, Christ who is a Savior for sinners, and the summons to faith and repentance. This is our message, built on the rock of Christ, and from this rock we will not be moved. Zach's going to come in a moment after I pray. He's going to give us a few moments of silent reflection before we sing. Let me urge you, go to God in your heart, silently where you're sitting, and resolve with Him, I will commit myself to his word, and I will commit myself to his gospel, and I will give myself to Jesus Christ, who is a Savior for sinners. Let's pray together. Our great God and our Father, hear our resolution. Receive our 
commitment and give every grace needed to keep it. Give help by your Spirit. We are aware that a good start is no guarantee of a good finish. And so we pray throughout the years and throughout the generations of this church's life that you would undertake so sweetly and tenderly to preserve the faith that has been delivered to us. You would preserve this body from error. You would preserve this body from division. That you would preserve this body from drifting from the mission that you have given to us as one of your churches. We pray that you personally would undertake to preserve us. And we would be bold to ask that you would do that under the return of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Whether that's going to be a thousand years from now, or next year, or in five minutes. Preserve us, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.